This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Bible League. Your gift of $35 will send seven Bibles to Christians in need, and your gift of $100 will send 20 Bibles. And right now, with a matching gift, your gift will be doubled. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. A shocking new national survey reveals that only 6% of Americans hold to a biblical worldview, even though 7 out of 10 of us purport to be Christians. And among 18 to 29-year-olds, only 2% have a biblical worldview. Another finding that should stun all of us, the number of American adults holding to a biblical worldview has declined by 50% over the past quarter century. Why is this happening? What kind of impact do these numbers have on our society? And what can be done inside our churches and families to help reverse the decline. We're going to talk about it all with renowned researcher George Barna, who conducted the study and serves as director of research at the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. George, great to have you with us. Hey, Janet. Good to be with you again. Thank you. Thank you so much. You have called this survey, which is called the American Worldview Inventory 2020, the most sophisticated survey of worldview ever conducted in the United States. Why is that? Well, I've been doing this for about 25 or 30 years, and first of all, there aren't that many people that are doing this kind of research. But secondly, over the course of time, we've learned a lot from the research that I've been doing. And so in this particular case, I worked with the faculty at Arizona Christian, and uh, we spent about five months putting this survey together, pre-testing it, changing it, testing it again. So it was a, a pretty involved process, took quite a long period of time. But we have eight different categories that we divided people's worldview into, 51 different questions that we asked uh, related to both beliefs and behavior. So it's a very extensive survey, and uh, we believe, as far as we know, it, it really is the most extensive that's been done to date. Right. So now, when you're looking at this category of biblical worldview among 18 to 29-year-olds, which is very, very shocking, that also strikes me as being really, really low, even lower than it seems previous research you've done. Is this the lowest it's ever been, especially in that category? It is. And in fact, what I've seen is that that category has dropped more quickly than the other generational segments that we test. In fact, it's dropped probably faster than any other segment that we've tested, uh, no matter what it was. So, yeah, to me, that's a huge red flag that's not just waving in the breeze. It's hitting us in the face and saying, wake up. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have any handle on the 18 to 29-year-old category? How many of those people actually go to church? Did you get that in your details when you were doing the survey, or is it just kind of a cross-section of every kind of American in that age group? Uh, Well, it is a cross-section, but uh, we also did look at uh, all kinds of different behaviors and, and whether or not they go to church was one of those. When we look at the 18 to 29s, uh, if you look nationally, what you find is about 38% of Americans say that they're going to church at least once a week. Among the 18 to 29s, it was 30 to 31%. So that wasn't necessarily the issue. I think the bigger issue is who's influencing their thinking. 
And one of the things we know is the churches are not having much influence on most people's thinking when it comes to worldview issues for reasons we can talk about. But, but importantly, their families have really thought, you know, let's do worldview by default. Let's let other people influence our kids and help them to develop a worldview so we don't have to deal with it because we're busy with jobs, we're busy with other kinds of issues. And so you put together the fact that families have abandoned worldview development intentionally. Uh, churches aren't having much of an impact because of the ways that we're teaching and our programming. And then you look at the impact that the schools, the media, and the government are having, and it helps to describe why the biggest or the most prolific worldview in America today is postmodernism, but you've also got a lot of people who are uh, really Marxist. You've got others who are secular humanists. Biblical worldview is probably about fifth on the list. Good grief. So what about the 6% of Americans overall? How did you measure that, and were are there any bright spots at all? That's a very low number as well. Well, it is a low number. You know, when you look for bright spots, I, I think one of them is the fact that the generation that has the highest likelihood of having a biblical worldview are, you know, what we will call in our research the elders, people who are in their 70s and older. And they're in the 9 to 10% range. So it's not huge, but it's bigger than any other generation. And the, the benefit of that, I believe, is that grandparents, if they choose to, can have a huge influence on their grandchildren. Why does that matter? Because we also know that a person's worldview predominantly develops starting at about 15, 16, maybe 18 months of age, and is almost fully developed by the age of 13. And then between the mid-teens to the late 20s is a time when we refine that worldview, and then from the 30s on, it's pretty much solidified. So those young children that grandparents can spend time with and can be the spiritual mentors to, I think that's really one of the the great opportunities that we, you know, I'm in that bracket too. I've got three grandchildren, and so I've taken this to heart. Now when the kids come over, we're reading different kind of books, we're watching different kind of media, we're having different kind of conversations, because I know if they don't get it from me, they may not get it. Yeah, good point. Something else that's very disturbing is you found that only one-fifth of those who attend evangelical Protestant churches have a biblical worldview, and fewer than one out of five born-again adults hold an actual biblical worldview. I guess that would be a little bit broader of born-again adults. But this really does show this incredible decline of Christianity in America. I mean, if you claim to be born again and you don't have a biblical worldview, are you really born again? I mean, this is very, very disturbing. It really is. You know, and, and one of the things that this relates to, and I'll be reporting on this next month, but, uh, you know, one of the things that we're looking at is, so what is it that these people do believe? I mean, we got, you know, 51 different questions that lay that out for us. And one of the things that a, a true, a genuine disciple of Christ has experienced is being broken of sin, self, and society. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, if you're not broken, I mean, not not just, you know, ashamed of or sorry about or concerned about your sin, but I mean, if you are not really heartbroken by it and your life doesn't radically change as you accept Christ and recognize what he did for you, then, yeah, I think we even have to wonder, are they born again? Only God knows. We're not trying to judge people, but we got to be asking some tough questions of ourselves so that we can go through meaningful self-evaluation. Right. And I think the question you raise is the right one. 
if you're born again and you don't have a biblical worldview, what are you doing? Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Well, now, when you ask these 51 worldview questions, what do you think? I mean, they're all important questions, no doubt. But what are some of the questions that you think really draw people out on the question of whether or not your belief and your behavior are consistent? You know, we, we, we broke these questions down into eight different categories. So in each category, we found, you know, that, that various questions were contributing to the problem, if you will. When, when we look at what's keeping people from having a biblical worldview, one of the ones that blew my mind has to do with the fact that people don't really trust the Bible. Hmm. You know, I mean, we don't spend time reading it. We don't believe that it's necessarily true. A large proportion of Americans don't believe that it's actually God's Word. And so you put all of those kinds of things together, and it begins to turn on the light bulb of, aha, this is why people don't have a biblical worldview. They're not into the Bible. And so if I'm a church leader, if I'm a pastor, a teacher, an elder, a deacon, somebody of authority and influence in my church— what that says to me is I've got to ask us to stand back and take a look at what we're doing and not make assumptions. We assume that if people show up, they believe in Jesus, uh, you know, they believe they have an orthodox set of beliefs about the nature and character and purpose of God, they believe in the Bible. Well, what we're finding is those assumptions are no longer true. I mean, barely half of Americans have an orthodox understanding of the nature and character of God. Mm. And so... We've got to get back to basics, and and maybe we need to even reinvestigate how is it that we're trying to teach people, because another study that I had done showed that people really don't learn very well these days from lectures. Hmm. That's kind of a, a past historical way that worked in terms of teaching. It's not working very well today for a variety of reasons. Yeah, we're going to take a very short break. Hang on just a moment. George Barno with us. We're talking about this American Worldview Inventory 2020. We'll be right back on Janet Meffer today. Here's Dan Steiner, president of Preborn, with an important update. 3,100 Americans lost their lives yesterday and the day before, not to the coronavirus, but to abortion on demand in our country. It's a tragedy of incomparable proportions, with over 800,000 weekly, globally, losing their lives. In the face of this, Preborn is offering free, compassionate, Christ-centered care and ultrasounds to girls in unplanned pregnancies. Would you prayerfully consider sponsoring an ultrasound for a girl today? Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country and the direct competition to Planned Parenthood. Your gift of $28 will provide one free ultrasound and $140 will provide five free ultrasounds. To donate, just call 855-402-BABY. 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax deductible. Will you help a mom in need choose life? Just call now. 855-402-2229 or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. From Kingdom Story Company comes I Still Believe. Available now for home viewing on demand. Based on the real-life true story of chart-topping singer Jeremy Camp, I Still Believe reminds us that amidst life storms, true hope can be found in Christ. You chose willingly to walk into the fire with her. That's what love is. I Still Believe. Starring KJ Apa, Rick Robertson, Shania Twain, and Gary Sinise. More information is available at I Still Believe Movie.com. I still believe. 
From now through April, Janet Meffer today is partnering with Bible League to send 1,200 Bibles to persecuted Christians around the world. Can you help? Your gift of $35 will send seven Bibles to Christians in need, and your gift of $100 will send 20 Bibles. And right now, with a matching gift, your gift will be doubled. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Well, this is a very shocking survey just out from George Barna, who is Director of Research at the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. It's the American Worldview Inventory 2020, finding that 6% of Americans hold to a biblical worldview. And when you look at the generation of 18 to 29-year-olds, only 2% of them have a biblical worldview. And that just doesn't affect merely the church. That affects families. That affects all of society. George, you were talking before we went to the break about the issue of how we teach a biblical worldview and how it seems that part of the problem at least has to do with how we are imparting a biblical worldview or not imparting a biblical worldview on the next generation coming up. What are your thoughts on how to alter what we've been doing and what we ought to do better in order to inculcate a biblical worldview to the upcoming generation of Christians? Yeah, you know, one thing would be rather than relying on um, lectures as the primary means of communicating information, this isn't about communicating information. This is about life transformation. You know, when Jesus talked about what does it take for somebody to be a disciple, you go back to the book of John, and three times he tried to clarify, this is what a disciple is. In John 8.31, he said, you're a disciple when you remain faithful to my teaching. Okay, so number one, we need to know his teaching. Number two, in John 13.35, he said, you prove that you're one of my disciples when you demonstrate your love for one another. All right, so we've got to take that teaching, we've got to implement it, we've got to apply it such that we're loving other people. And then thirdly, in John fifteen eight, he said, uh, when you produce much fruit, then you are my disciples. So we've got three different things we can look at here, Janet, that, that tell us, look, we were made to be disciples. And Jesus laid out for here, for us here, three different ways of understanding the totality of discipleship. So, how does that work? Well, part of it has to do with what we teach people. As we've studied what churches are teaching in America, we found that it's not systematic, it's not leading to a biblical worldview, and it avoids many of the topics that are so crucial to people being to break through mentally, emotionally, spiritually in their understanding of what God is trying to give us in His Word. This is for our well-being. He didn't just need a bestseller. He was trying to help us to live our best life. Yeah. And so we got to take it seriously. So, you know, being able to do all that and having people that are mentoring us, we found that that was the single most impactful approach to a person's life being transformed. Them being teamed up with somebody who's a little bit more spiritually mature, a little bit farther down the road of development than they are and who's willing to reach back and say, look, I don't know at all, I'm not perfect, but here's what I've learned. Maybe it will help you, maybe there are ways you can apply it, I'll help you however I can. Right, exactly. Well, and we know that the Bible talks about that, the older are to teach the younger. That's part of the whole act of discipleship that we see referenced in Scripture. But I go back to something else that you mentioned earlier, which is that it seems many Americans don't trust the Bible. 
And that's a huge problem because it seems like, at least in my experience, there have been no shortage of apologists out there trying to put forward the evidence for Scripture and the evidence for the canon and all of the things that we think people would be convinced by. But how do we deal with that? And, and particularly, how do pastors deal with that? Because that would seem to be a good spart- starting place, at least, to have the, the man in the pulpit address the issue of the trustworthiness of Scripture and really get that down with the younger generation coming up. What, what should they be doing, do you think? So I think the first mistake we make, and it's the mistake that we make, is we assume that we're going to accomplish all of this with adults. The truth of the matter is, once we get adults in a church, their worldview is already virtually set in stone. True. If we want to impact their worldview, because a worldview starts developing at 15 to 18 months of age, and is almost fully developed by the age of 13, that's where we need to be uh, providing that kind of insight to young people about what is the Bible, where did it come from, why can we trust it, what good is it, is it relevant to today? All the kinds of questions that people are going to wrestle with that's when we need to be addressing those things, as well as giving them practical applications for the principles that we're trying to get across to them. Yeah. Well, and you said that Christian churches with a high view of the Bible were more likely to have a biblical worldview, which makes sense. If you emphasize the authority of Scripture, that's a very big deal. I thought it was also interesting, George, that you said of this group you call Sage Cons, which stands for Spiritually Active Governance Engaged Conservative Christians, which is a mouthful, 44% of them have a biblical worldview. How, to what do you attribute that? Because that's that's a fairly high number there. You want it to be higher, but 44% seems like a pretty hefty number. Why is there a, a lot of the sage cons there embracing you know, a biblical worldview more than some of the other categories? Well, one of the key things about sage cons is that they do believe that there is absolute moral truth and that they believe it comes from the Bible. So it goes back to what we were just talking about a few minutes ago. These are people who believe, yes, the Bible is the Word of God. Yes, the Bible is trustworthy and reliable. Yes, the Bible is something that we need to uh, read on a consistent basis. We need to not just read it, but study it and apply it. And so sage cons, uh, you know, we talked about sage cons, conservatives. Why are they conservative? Because they believe those very things. And it's those truths that have led them to be conservative not just in their political views, but in their their economic activities, in their spiritual points of view. You know, it's it's a way of thinking that impacts their way of life, because you do what you believe. And so they're getting their beliefs right, and that's what's affecting their behavior. So when we look at sage cons, I mean, these are people that are, uh, you know, they're not only Bible believers, they say, look, it's faith first in my life. That's what needs to come first. And the fact that yeah, they have just about the, the highest likelihood of having a biblical worldview of any segment that we look at in America, and yet it's less than 50% of them, and these people are serious about their faith. Wow. That, to me, keeps yelling out, hey, we got to reexamine how it is that we're teaching people because it's not getting through. Yeah, really good point. And the number of American adults that have a biblical worldview, you say, has declined by 50% over the past 25 years. Why is that, do you think? What are the biggest factors in, in you know that decline in the number of people with a worldview that is biblical? Well, I think the single biggest factor is that parents no longer take on the worldview development of their children as an intentional activity that they're aware of that they're measuring, that they're concerned about. 
they're they're doing worldview by default. They're letting the world come in and develop the worldview of their child. Hmm. Uh, and, and part of that has to do with the fact that, you know, by the time the average kid in America reaches the age of 18, they've been exposed to more than 32,000 hours of media content. Yeah. That's going to have an awful big impact on what children believe. That's really what's driving their worldview. And, and keep in mind that today only 5% of the parents of children between the ages of 5 and 13 have a biblical worldview. Wow. So you can't get what you don't have. And if 95 out of every 100 parents don't even have a biblical worldview to give, naturally their kids aren't going to be picking it up. No. And and you add to that what they're getting in a lot of the public schools, and still most kids, kids go to public schools, so you'll have that influence as well. Yeah. 88% of the kids in America go to public schools. Only 3% of school-age children in America today are in a school environment where there's a possibility of them being exposed to biblical worldview training. Good grief. That's a that's a crisis in and of itself. But what happens, George, the, the, the larger implications here, we can see what the implications would be for the church if we continue to see these numbers. But what about the impact on the United States as a whole? I mean, we are a culture that is based on the blueprint of the Bible, if not literally on the Bible. Uh, all of our principles as Americans come out of a biblical understanding and a biblical worldview to some extent. What happens to a country when its Christians are down to this, you know, minutiae number, uh, 2% of a biblical worldview among 18 to 29-year-olds and only 6% overall, what kind of impact do you think that has on the country as a whole? Well, I mean, we see it in our research regularly when we look at people's perspectives on morals, when we look at the prevailing values of people in our country, they have been degraded so radically over the last 20 years, and it's because of the foundation, understand that a worldview, no matter which one you possess, that is the equivalent of an operating unit, uh, you know, the CPU for a computer. Mm-hmm. You can't do anything without the operating system. We can't do anything without a worldview. It's our worldview that, that drives us to make the decisions we make. And so if we've got the wrong worldview, we're going to be making the wrong decisions. We make the wrong decisions, wrong behaviors. And that's how you get into a country where things like, you know, homosexuality and divorce and uh, theft and deceit and lying, cheating, stealing, all of those things we're seeing increasingly, Americans are saying, eh, it's okay. Yeah. You know, it really depends on the circumstances. Yeah. Well, no, that, that's not what God teaches in his word. Right. And, and all of those things, the abortion and all of the other moral problems that we have in America today are one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is the rise in the religious hostility. And I think more and more Christians are waking up to that. Boy, this country not only isn't supporting biblical values uh, anymore the way it used to in, in large measure, but they're turning their anger on Christians for holding to a biblical worldview. So in other words, are we also seeing a rise in hostility and and you know is that also a discouragement for a lot of people i don't want to be a christian the christians are jerks and weirdos and homophobes and bigots and i mean it all kind of goes together doesn't it when the culture goes the wrong way then it turns on people who are going the right way yeah and again i think it comes back to a biblical worldview which is a, a, a way of thinking that helps you to know life is completely spiritual And so you need to see everything through a spiritual lens. You know, God and Satan are at war, and and we're caught up in that war, which means that every day we are involved in a culture war that has a spiritual foundation. And once we begin to understand the nature of the fact that 
This all goes back to spiritual truth or spiritual deceit. And, and we begin to be able to discern one from the other so that we have wisdom in the choices that we make. That's what turns the war. It's not about trying to be good people. 75% of Americans say people are basically good. No, they're not. No, they're certainly not. You have to have that biblical worldview. Well, check out culturalresearchcenter.com. George Barna with us. George, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Janet. All right. God bless you. And we'll be back on Janet Meffer today. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Bible League. Your gift of $35 will send seven Bibles to Christians in need, and your gift of $100 will send 20 Bibles. And right now, with a matching gift, your gift will be doubled. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Well, it's a very important question. Why are abortion clinics being allowed to stay open as supposedly essential businesses during a pandemic? Federal judges in Alabama, Texas, and Ohio now have blocked orders that ban non-essential medical procedures from curtailing abortions during the coronavirus pandemic. And representatives of more than 30,000 physicians, including the Christian Medical and Dental Associations, have now called for the suspension of all elective abortions in accordance with the current CDC recommendations. We're going to talk about it now with Dr. Haywood Robinson. Dr. Robinson is a former abortionist, and he and his wife, Noreen, stopped performing abortions when they came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. They're now a voice for the pro-life movement. And Dr. Robinson is a Brazos Medical Associate Family Medicine doctor in College Station, Texas, joining us now. Dr. Robinson, thank you so much for being with us. It's a blessing to be here. Thank you Thank for having you. me. Well, it's, it's wonderful to have you here because you have such an important perspective on this. What is your reaction to the fact that abortions are being called essential medical procedures and they should be allowed to stay open while the churches have to close? Right. Well, the first thing I think uh, is illustrated here that we have accepted their narrative or their notion that abortion is a medical procedure. Well, first off, Abortion is not a medical procedure. It's an execution. It's the taking of the life of an innocent preborn child. So the first thing the pro-death movement did was, of course, get Roe v. Wade passed, but they also changed the way uh, uh, how we think. We call these facilities that I call abortuaries or abortion facilities, we sometimes call them clinics. Clinics are places where people go to get better. No one gets better at an abortion facility or an abortuary. The baby, 99% of the time, is is killed, and mom is damaged in a number of ways. So number one, uh, abortion is not a medical procedure. Now, for the sake of what we're dealing with now with COVID-19, the governor is saying only uh, uh, no elective medical procedures now within the realm of of the the legislature or the way we're dealing with things legally, yes, it will have to fall into the category of an elective procedure simply because it's been uh, legalized and it's performed by physicians, but it's by no means a medical procedure. Pregnancy is is not a disease, and this uh, procedure does not help 
either the mother or the baby, but it illustrates how the abortion industry does not care. Uh, well, first off, they don't care about women and children, and they don't even care about their own um, employees who they're exposing unnecessarily uh, to the things associated with this epidemic. Mm-hmm. So the first thing I do is reject that whole notion that uh, of, uh, abortion from uh, from a medical ministry point of view. And just let me also point out that about uh, 2,500 years ago, the Hippocratic Oath was written, and it basically said four things. The doctors would uh, keep confidential uh, medical information. We would not be involved with euthanasia, uh, no sexual relations with patients. And of course, the last thing, which is our issue, is we would not do abortions. We also worked under the tenet of first, do no harm. So medicine was not supposed to be under the, uh, I guess, uh, uh, covering of of, uh, the legal system, but was supposed to be a ministry. And we have, as physicians, betrayed the public with this horrible, horrible holocaust of abortion. Very well said. I agree. And I love that point, too. Not only are abortions not essential medical procedures, uh, they're executions, but pregnancy is not a disease. I mean, it's kind of ridiculous. What would happen to a woman if she didn't go get an abortion? The pregnancy would continue and she'd give birth to a baby. How is that a bad medical outcome? I mean, it, it, the whole thing makes no sense. And and I mean, this goes back to this wonderful call that so many of your wonderful groups have come out, representatives of over 30,000 physicians who do subscribe to the Hippocratic oath, as you just mentioned, calling for all elective abortions to be suspended right now. Can you tell us a little bit more about this effort and the doctors who understand how important the cause of life is? Well, I think that your listeners uh, should be aware that the overwhelming majority of physicians are pro-life. It's unfortunate that this is one of those situations where the tail wags the dog. Uh, I won't mention any uh, organized medicine uh, uh, entities. However, they all are pretty much in agreement that abortion is is part of good women's good women's medical care. But what has happened? We're seeing. Well, first of all, the pro life movement in the last ten to fifteen years has been taking off. Uh, in the last six months, I've retired and taken a full time job with Forty Days for Life, which uh, some of your listeners have heard about. And the pro-life movement has gained momentum. And I think what it's doing, now that it's becoming, and I hate to even refer to abortion as an issue, I think it's more like a holocaust. But I think, if I might borrow a term, the doctors, the pro-life doctors are coming out of the closet and we're saying enough is enough. We're not going to tolerate these doctors. And these facilities are having difficulty finding uh, physicians to do abortions. For instance, there's a facility approximately 100 miles from here where they do abortions Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday every other week. They fly that physician in from New Hampshire, mm. and she refers to herself as the traveling abortionista. Uh, we have these transient, non-caring doctors who come in, they do their damage, they don't care about these women. It's all about the money, and can't they? They aren't even in town to manage their complications because they're running off to their next transient uh, venue, uh, wherever that might be. 
Oh, that's just nauseating to think about. But you're right. And there are a number of those abortionists who travel around to you know, collect their blood money. What would you say, Dr. Robinson, if you have a woman right now who's listening, who's pregnant and might have been considering an abortion, what would you say to that woman about the need to choose life for her baby? What sort of plea would you make to her? Well, I, I would speak to them. And, and I've been doing this. And my wife has. Uh, We've been doing this a little bit over 30, 35 years, uh, approximately. Well, first, you need to slow everything down. Uh, an unexpected pregnancy many times causes a woman to panic, kind of like in this health situation we're in right now. People are kind of a fear panic. You know, right. what am I going to do? Right. If, it, if they're a young girl, you know, what are my parents going to say? Or if they're in school, how am I going to stay in school? Uh, many times the boyfriend, uh, uh, the significant other, uh, and sometimes if a spouse uh, is, is threatening to abandon them. But you slow them down first, and if I'm the one of the first people to talk to them, I let them know that if they get an abortion, they're always going to regret it for the rest of their life. So I let them know they're going to have regret and get them pointed toward a pregnancy resource center. The key is to stop the panic let them know that they're, uh, it's, it's, it's this type of situation. It's, it's normal to have anxiety, etc. Get them to recognize the humanity of the, of, of, of the baby. Uh, probably the biggest thing that, that, that uh, flips the table for us in the pro-life movement is the use of ultrasound that's used in the pregnancy resource centers. Yeah. When a woman sees... Uh, and makes a visual connection with her child, we have a significant decrease in uh, the possibility or the probability of an abortion in that situation. So, number one, get them slowed down, get them reassured that it's not going to be the end of the world, let them know they will be able to finish school, let them know there can be life for both mom and baby, she can adopt her, have the baby adopted, they can keep it, there are resources that they're probably not been aware of the pro-death movement all uh, commonly says that we don't care about the babies we just want to be anti-abortion but we all know that's not true right so we let them know about the resources vast resources in the pro-life movement that we didn't have 30 years ago yep absolutely oh such good advice and i just pray if you are one of those girls please take dr robinson's advice to heart dr haywood robinson thank you so much for what you do dr robinson it was wonderful to have you here It's a blessing. Thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure. God bless you, too. And we'll be back right after this. If you could ease the suffering of a persecuted Christian right now, would you? Hi, it's Janet Mefford, and I know you would. Hebrews 13.3 urges us to remember those who are persecuted, noting that when the body of Christ anywhere suffers, we suffer together. These believers live where evangelism is criminalized, where churches are burned, and where Bibles are scarce. They need the hope found only in God's Word, and your gift today lets them know they're not forgotten. For only $5, a believer like Anna in Africa 
America will receive a Bible, be discipled in her new faith, and trained to share Christ. $35 sends seven Bibles, $100 sends 20, and a limited time Bible for Bible match will help us meet our goal of sending the hope of God's word to 1,200 persecuted Christians. Become a Bible sender today by calling 800-YES-WORD. That's 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Once again, call now, 800-YES-WORD. Are you in need of a health care program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $199 per month, and there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more by calling 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561. Or visit libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. I want to talk a little bit about this Rodney Howard Brown situation, pastor of the river at Tampa Bay Church, who was arrested on Monday by Hernando County Sheriff deputies for holding his church service on Sunday. And this is all going back to administrative orders from the county about whether or not you can gather together. As CNN reports, Hillsborough County Sheriff Chad Chronister said that Howard Brown had been charged with two counts, unlawful assembly and a violation of health emergency rules. Both are second degree misdemeanors and Chronister spoke at a press conference about that. But I, I want to go back before we get into any of that audio. I want you to hear for yourself what Rodney Howard Brown, also known as the Holy Ghost bartender, I have to throw that in there, um, what he had to say earlier, because I think we have to put some of this in context. I have a lot to say on this, but let's listen to earlier on when Rodney Howard Brown was holding his church services at a time when churches were beginning to really back away and honor the fact that this coronavirus will be put in its place and stopped, hopefully, by the grace of God earlier and qu- more quickly if people will stop gathering together in groups. But this was what Rodney Howard Brown had to say at his church just not too long ago. This is cut one. Well, I know they don't want us to do this, but just turn around and greet two or three people. Tell them, you love them, Jesus loves them. Amen. Listen, this has to be the safest place. I said, this has to be the safest place. If you cannot be safe in church, you're in serious trouble. We are not stopping anything. I I got news for you. This church will never close. The only time the church is closed is when the rapture is taking place. This Bible school is open because we're raising up revivalists, not pansies. Okay, not the best look there. Not the best look. It's very defiant. And I think in a way... There's an element of testing God in all of that. Oh, and, and there have been some other pastors I know I've read about who have said similar things. Oh, the virus would never touch us here. That's testing God, in my opinion. 
which is sinful. You don't test the Lord. And viruses can get Christians as much as they can get non-Christians. Anyway, what happened was that the Hillsborough County issued an order directing residents to remain at home. It was effective March 27th, except for essential services. And that would be things like going to the grocery store and the doctor's office and the pharmacy. And the list of essential services does not include attending church. As CNN reports, Florida has more than 5,200 confirmed coronavirus cases and at least 63 deaths. Now, I want to play for you a little bit of what Hillsborough County Sheriff Chad Chronister had to say at a press conference after the arrest. This is cut two. Last night I made a decision to seek an arrest warrant for the pastor of a local church who intentionally and repeatedly chose to disregard the orders set in place by our president, our governor, the CDC, and the Hillsborough County Emergency Policy Group. His reckless disregard for human life put hundreds of people in his congregation at risk and thousands of residents who may interact with them this week in danger. Since last Friday, March 27th, the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office has been in contact with leaders at the River of Tampa Bay Church. We received an anonymous tip that Pastor Dr. Ronald Howard Brown refused request to temporarily stop holding large gatherings at his church. And instead, he was encouraging his large congregation to meet at his church. Pastor Howard Brown's actions were a direct violation of Executive Order 20-5, which went into effect on March 20th, limiting gatherings, including faith-based gatherings, to less than 10 people. He was also violating a safer-at-home order, which went into effect on March 27th, advising Hillsborough County residents to remain in their homes as much as possible to create greater social distancing and reduce the spread of COVID-19. All right. So he went on to say that they tried to engage with Rodney Howard Brown and Rodney Howard Brown did not make himself available. So they couldn't actually talk to him. That's another problem, I think, although he might have been advised by his attorney not to do that, that Liberty Council is representing him. And then they heard from Hillsborough County State Attorney Andrew Warren, who had this to say. This is cut five. Public safety is always our number one priority. And make no mistake, this issue is about the health and safety of our community. Putting your parishioners at risk in a time of an emergency like this is not only reckless, but it's illegal. If you're violating the safer at home order, law enforcement is going to direct you to stop. And the order is clear that it's intended to promote compliance, not punish non-compliance. But where people are refusing to obey law enforcement in this regard, you risk being arrested and prosecuted. I'd like to note that I think it's unfortunate that the pastor here is hiding behind the First Amendment. One, it's absolutely clear that emergency orders like this are constitutional and valid. Second of all, leaders from our faith-based community across this country have embraced the importance of social distancing. They've encouraged their congregations to practice social distancing for their own health and to slow the spread of COVID-19. Lastly, I'd remind the good pastor of Mark 12:31, which says there's no more important commandment than to love thy neighbor as thyself. Loving your neighbors is protecting them, not jeopardizing their health by exposing them to this deadly virus. All right. I do 
agree that it is loving your neighbor to keep your neighbor from being exposed to coronavirus. He did, however, quote the Bible out of context. Mark 12, 31 says the second commandment is this, love your neighbor as yourself. We all know the first commandment, the most important commandment Jesus gave after giving the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, was love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is love your neighbor as yourself. If you're going to quote scripture, quote it right and quote it in context. Now, Matt Staver over at Liberty Council is representing, as I mentioned, Rodney Howard Brown and had put out uh, a press release on this talking about him being arrested for holding a church service. And he talked about this safer at home administrative order, which contains 42 paragraphs of exceptions, including religious personnel. Following this long list of exceptions, the same order adds another huge exception which is businesses which are not described in paragraph three and are able to maintain the required physical distancing six feet may operate. Paragraph three is the section with 42 paragraphs of exceptions. Another paragraph stated if a business is not mentioned as exempted, but is able to comply with the six feet separation, then it can operate. So he mentions that Howard Brown and the church took extra precautions for the church meeting. They enforced the six foot distance. All the staff wore gloves. There was hand sanitizer, et cetera, et cetera. But you know what? I would say this. I would say this. I don't have a problem. In fact, I think it's wise that most churches are trying to comply with the government. I don't believe that the government has the right to unilaterally shut down churches forever the way that Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York City, is threatening. If you don't do what I say, I could shut down your synagogues or your churches permanently. Dude, you have no constitutional authority to do that. But I think we can comply willingly as long as it is a finite period of time. I am not willing to close down my church permanently any more than anybody else is, but I think this is wisdom. I don't think it's a matter of the First Amendment. You must let me stay open. We're maintaining six feet distances. You know, I watched that video of his church service on what was it, the 15th? They weren't maintaining six feet distances. Maybe they are now, but that's pretty hard to do when you have hundreds of people. How can you ensure that you're going to maintain a six foot distance between every single person at all times? And furnishing hand sanitizer, that's not going to do much good. I mean, it's better than nothing, but you can still catch coronavirus by somebody having coronavirus and not yet having been diagnosed with it and the droplets go through the air. So some of this is we're concerned about the First Amendment. And some of this is I think that Rodney Howard Brown is just being defiant. And I it's it's difficult because I certainly don't want the government to become overbearing and tyrannical. There was actually a story that was very, very concerning in Baltimore. Police shut down a church service at a Baptist church, Friendship Baptist Church, and the pastor said there were 10 people in the church. He said we had approximately eight to nine police officers show up at the church in the middle of the sermon. And the security stopped the police officers at the door and told them they couldn't come in. He dismissed the church members, talked to the sergeant. He said, you know, I'm obeying the order. It's 10 people or less. And apparently officers came by twice before the church was emptied. Now, that's something for which you should hire an attorney because he's following the order, which is you can't meet with more than 10 people. He was obeying the order. That's just tyranny right there. And we do need to be careful of that. But I think for the sake of... Good common sense. I think it's okay, and I think it's right for churches to obey, a la Romans 13, obey the government, which is given to us by God for our good. Is it not good to make sure that we don't spread 
a deadly pandemic. I think it absolutely is. Should it be something that's permanently in effect? No way. No way. And I think we're going to have more of a sense as to when we can say, hey, enough is enough. We can we can come out. We can meet as church bodies in our buildings again. Weird times. Very, very weird times we're living in. Thank you for being with us, though. We're out of time. Take care. We'll see you next time here on Janet Meffer Today. This hour of Janet Meffer Today has been brought to you by Bible League. Help us help Bible League send the hope of God's word to 1,200 persecuted believers. $35 sends seven Bibles, and today your gift will be doubled with a limited time match. Call now, 800-YES-WORD. 800-YES-WORD. 800-YES-WORD.